to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us, and uh, it's a special show today. Uh, we've got uh, our wives with us. Say hello, hey. wives. Hi. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and we got Dave, too. Hi, Dave. Hi. Hey, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, this is a special show, not for that reason, but uh, although that's special. Uh, the reason is, is this is the last time that we're going to be together as a, as a threesome in person before I and Marla, my wife, move out to Washington. So this is kind of fun, kind of special. Now, we're going to be together again in person, you know, in the future. In fact, I'm going to be back in this area in late March for almost two weeks. In fact, just so folks know, I'm speaking at Singing Hills Campground up in New Hampshire. That's near Dartmouth. So I'm, doing, I'm speaking there uh, the last weekend in March. So I'm coming back for that, but I'm going to be back for other things as well. And if you're in the New England area, uh, check out Singing Hills Campground in New Hampshire for the men's retreat that I'll be speaking at if you want to be a part of that. Anyway, how did, I, how did I go down this rabbit trail? Anyway, so anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. <laughs> and uh, as, I, as I said before, this is a theology podcast. And uh, I uh, am a former resident of New England because by the time this show comes out, my wife and I will be residents of Washington, the state of Washington, not Washington, D.C., thank the Lord. Which is trying to become a state anyway. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Let's pray that that doesn't happen. But anyway, uh, the state of Washington in the upper left-hand corner of the country. And uh, we'll, we're actually going to be living in the Portland area, so we're right across the border from Oregon uh, and in a suburb of Portland. And uh, uh, we're going to be uh, in Vancouver. And uh, that's where I'm going to be serving a church, my wife as well. And uh, anyway, uh, a lot of folks have expressed concern for, for us as we head out to Portland. I want you to know that uh, this is actually kind of the rigor for us. Uh, we lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts for a decade. We lived on Cape Cod. You know, we, we kind of lived in a lot of liberal places, and uh, and I actually enjoyed... And that's what made you a conservative. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. But I, I, I became more and more conservative the longer I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> anyway, but uh, so that's that. And uh, I've written a bunch of books, and hopefully by the time this show is uh, is posted, and I think it's going to be posted on March 8th, I may have said that already, uh, my book uh, on Tom Bombadil may be getting close to being uh, published. So anyway, so that's enough, enough about me. Glenn, tell us about yourself and this magnificent uh, regalia or the stuff that you're... That, that, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, my name is Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I do a few other things too. What's in your beard? Um, what What is in my beard are dragons. All right. All right. I had a guy... I don't know if you guys saw this. I posted your, your photo last week and a, and a few other photos of a, of a show we recorded, and somebody called us Saved Wizards. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a good way of putting it, I think. <laughs> but you actually looked the part there. Right, you're doing the Gandalf today. Last time you did the Gimli, and now you're doing the Gandalf. Okay. And Tom, Tom, tell us about yourself. Uh, Tom Price, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at a variety of places, um, and other things. <laughs> Two other things. Right, right. Uh, 
so, uh, but that's enough yeah, <laughs> for well, now. <laughs> yeah, well, good stuff. And, and you're going to be working on a book soon. Yep, yep, a battle ham, handbook for the baptized. I'm looking forward gonna to be, that. going to be a kind of combination of the way the early church used to write theology manuals that not only presented kind of the core essence of the faith in challenged times, but after went after the alternatives as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We picked fights back they in those days. They picked fights, yeah. Today we just stand by the wall and hope that no one notices and then and, and somebody asks us to dance. You know, kind of like the wallflower church today, <laughs> whereas right. we used to be warriors. You know, yeah. Erasmus wrote a book called The Handbook for the Militant Christian. Yeah. Hey, uh, Erasmus of all people. Yep. Yeah. It, it's usually just called the Enchiridion, but yeah, it, yeah, right, similar right. translates yeah, uh, Augustine's Enchiridion yep. yeah. translation. Yep. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah, handbook. That's where we get the idea. Anyway, speaking of that, this uh, is my day today, and I want to talk about esoteric and exoteric forms of writing. What am I talking about? Now, you guys know what I'm talking about, but folks in, in podcast land may be, uh, what is this esoteric and exoteric and so forth? What's it all? What, what, what's he referring to? They're thinking it sounds very esoteric. That's right, that's right, that's right. Well, let me, let me set the stage for you here. Actually, quick story. Okay. R.C. Sproul, when he was in seminary, had a professor by the name of John Gerstner. Oh, yeah. And I, I've, I did a weekend retreat with John Gerstner once, and it's um, unforgettable. Um, but it, it, Sproul was reading, and he came across the word esoteric. And he thought... Gerstner always, when there's a word in the readings that he doesn't think people know, he always asks, and he, we always get caught flat-footed. Yeah. So he looked up the word esoteric in the dictionary, and the dictionary definition was cognizant only to the initiate. <laughs> <laughs> and in so, other words, you're not supposed to know if you don't know what the meaning of the word esoteric is. And so Ger Gerstner's going through the lecture, he says, and he stops and says, okay, what does esoteric mean? And Sproul's hand goes up and he says, Mr. Sproul, cognizant only to the initiate. And Gerstner's like, right, okay. <laughs> and, he just, and he just kept going. <laughs> That's right. So, to, to, to answer the question, we've got some food arriving here for, for folks. Go ahead and, and uh, set it down there. We appreciate that. Thank you. Anyway, to understand what esoteric and exoteric mean, you have to understand as well the context within which esoteric and exoteric writing is, is uh, meaningful and necessary. We are entering a period of time, and we've been in it for a while, in which uh, saying things that are true can cost you things. It can cost you your job. Uh, it can cost you your reputation. Uh, it can cost you friends. It may uh, cost you your life. Now, in the Western world, that's, you know, thankfully not the case, or at least in the vast majority of circumstances that's not the case now in some parts of the world today saying what you mean and meaning what you say and being extremely clear can cost you your life now we we uh i think in the united states and in western europe are wringing our hands because we're like what's happened we used to be able to say what we th thought and 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 people might disagree with us, but it wouldn't cost us our jobs, it wouldn't cost us reputation, it wouldn't cost us friends. Well, maybe it would still cost you friends, but, but it wouldn't cost you the way it seems to cost you now. And uh, 
I think that this is a nice reality check because what we've experienced for the last few hundred years is the exception, not the rule. In the history of the world, it's always been costly to say what you think. Now, think about Maximus the Confessor. Uh, you know, just think about the name, yep. Maximus the Confessor. It's all about confessing. It's all about speaking. Guess what happened to Maximus the Confessor because he talked? You, you're nodding, Glenn. You know what is coming. He had his tongue cut out. He had his tongue cut out because he said something that somebody didn't like, someone who was powerful didn't like. Now, we're returning to that world. Now, in the history of uh, philosophy, in the history of um, Judaism, in the history of the church, there has been uh, a, a need to speak at more than one level because there are things that you want the initiates to know, the people who need to know, and we, you need to keep some people who shouldn't know in the dark. And, and this is something that is necessary at different times. Now, you might think, well, don't the great martyrs, think about Maximus the Confessor, for example, don't the great martyrs just say it like it is? <laughs> well, sometimes, but sometimes they don't. Think about Jesus. When we think about esoteric teaching, the parables are esoteric teaching. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was a young Christian, I had no clue what Jesus was up to. I thought that Jesus was actually trying to make uh, complex ideas simple with parables. Mm -hmm. But then Jesus contradicts that yeah. thought when the, when the disciples ask him, why do you speak in parables? He says to them, so some people don't know what I'm talking about. In other words, he takes simple ideas and makes them complicated so that certain people don't understand what he's talking about. The Apostle Paul, uh, in, you know, at times engaged in esoteric interpretation. You think about Galatians and his reflections on Hagar and so forth. Uh, on the surface, the story of Hagar is the story of Hagar. Mm -hmm. But what you have with the Apostle Paul is, uh, no, the story of Hagar is saying something more than just, you know, what happened to Hagar. Hmm. It says, you know, that story says something about us. Anyway, so exoteric, as in, uh, contrasted with esoteric, so esoteric with E-S and then exoteric with E-X, exoteric is for everybody. Yeah. Exoteric teaching is just sort of plain, simple teaching that anyone should be able to understand. Esoteric teaching esoteric writing is writing for the initiates, the writing for the inner circle, writing for the people who need to know and writing in such a way that the people who shouldn't know don't know. Hmm. Anyway, any thoughts on that? It actually goes well beyond just teaching. In the early church, and elements of this are still preserved at least liturgically in the Orthodox Church, you it took probably about a year or so before you were actually admitted to the church. Yeah. You had to go through an extensive period of catechesis of teaching, and then you were baptized on Easter. All right, right. And until you were baptized, you could not attend the full church service. Okay. There's a point during the service in which everybody who was not baptized was escorted out of the church. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And it shows up in the Orthodox liturgy where at one point they just say, the doors, the doors, mm. meaning let them out and close the doors. Interesting. Um, now, they don't do that anymore. They don't do that part of it anymore, but the words are still there. Yeah, yeah. 
And they were, of course, they they have a much stronger kind of liturgical continuity to the times that heresies arose, which took advantage of these kinds of things. And they they would know that oftentimes the insider's language get in and then start to deceive the churches and and the flocks. So a lot of those things developed around that. But back to the... Yeah, the the way in which Jesus often teaches is you don't have someone who is just trying to say it like it is often. Mm -hmm. Um, People often would get it. Sure. Um, And the people that I think were meant to get it in maybe those. Thank you. But there was also plausible deniability. Yeah, that's that's right. Well, that's right. Well, that's right. No, that's how you take it. I remember someone saying, you know, he sort of op- opens the eyes of the blind and blinds those who say they can see. I mean, yeah, that was part yeah. of what's going on there. But, right. but, but also there was, um, you hear it all the time. He would say certain things, um, people would get it, and then he'd be run out of town and have to chase out of town for his life. Sure. But other times he would have to teach in environments where he, he needed to still teach, get the truth across, trusting the truth to do its thing. But he did it in forms that... Um, but those familiar with the language um, and everything else were puzzled because he was right. putting it into right. to right. this this kind of esoteric. Right. Um, now, now we all know, form. of course, that when it comes to the Lord, he came with a, in a you know an, an objective, and that was to die, and then to be raised. So, uh, in a sense. Um, there was there was a time for him to just kind of say it like it is and let the chips fall where they may or you know whatever but the timing was critically important um he had to be crucified at a particular time he had to be crucified at a particular place because those things served as signs and fulfilled prophecy but also helped people make connections with a whole array of esoteric, you could say, signs. You know, Pascal Lamb, you know, Passover, these different things. Um, so the fact that, that he just couldn't just say what he wanted to say in, in any old place and just let the chips fall where, it, where they may, you know, there were times where he, you know, uh, hit the road. <laughs> there were times where he, you know, sort of surreptitiously left the room. You know, because it wasn't his time. But when it was right, when the time was right, he just, he provoked uh, uh, the authorities and they responded just the way he expected them to. You know, I'm reminded actually of of P.G. Woodhouse. (laughs) (laughs) How? But but not what you're thinking. Okay, okay. P.G. Woodhouse was actually captured by the Germans in World War II. Oh, I didn't know that. And they knew he was a popular British writer. They figured that out. So they asked him to start making propaganda broadcasts. Okay, okay. And Woodhouse agreed to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and the Germans did not understand a thing about what he was doing to them. This is beautiful. And, and you know, 
because he's speaking at two levels, obviously. That, that's right. And, so and you got the sort of the crude second language level of understanding that the Germans have of English. Mm -hmm. He seems to be saying things we want him to say. And, and but they do not understand the 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 satire and everything else <laughs> that's in it. But now, now here's the thing: after the war, yeah, he was accused of being a collaborator. Wow. Okay. So mm -hmm. the, so even his own people so, didn't get it. Well, I, I, I think a lot of them got it, but they just couldn't get over the fact that he was doing the supposed propaganda broadcasts gotcha, for the Germans. Gotcha. And that, it seems to me, ends up being a good parable yeah. about the problem of esoteric language and, and what you do and what you don't do with it. Well, that, let's explore that a little bit because I, that is a fascinating thing to consider. You know, is it um, cowardice to speak esoterically? I mean, should we always be ready to die on the spot for everything we believe every time? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, not saying we should. I mean, yeah, <laughs> in the sense that... that Thanks, uh, Tom. But, <laughs> but yeah, in the sense that I like to say yeah before I say <laughs> It's an esoteric thing. <laughs> or a quirk. <laughs> um, but in that quirk, um, I, I think there, there is... Uh, there is some wisdom in what Jesus does and what the church has done through time and what the different people are talking about does um, that comes in, in talking about this kind of timing. Um, especially at times when people are expecting you to act a certain way, say certain things, and, and actually, in a strange way, the truth that we have to communicate maybe in straightforward kinds of ways isn't being communicated anymore in those straightforward kinds of ways. This is, the, this is the amazing thing of different ways of communicating. Um, for example, um, just the way we, we use certain phrases or terms, they're now loaded. They're politically loaded, culturally right, right. loaded, this. So they may have, they used to be terms we could have used in what we consider straightforward speaking, speaking the truth. But now, no, they're not communicating the truth. They're actually not communicating the right, truth. Right. They're eclipsing it. Um, so what is happening is our straightforward ways of communicating become vehicles for actually communicating a whole bunch of things we didn't even know were actually in there. You're privileged, you're this, you're yeah, that, right, you're this. Right. And so actually the wisdom of, of some of this, um, careful way of saying things, the truth, but saying it in ways that it's communicating to the right people in the right places without becoming an easy target for being exploited by those that want to take advantage of what they're expecting us to say in ordinary ways. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that one of the things that Jesus was great at was reframing the question. You know, he'd get set up, and then, you know, you know, you could say, well, why don't you just answer the question straight? Well, the reason you don't want to answer the question straight is because the question is designed to trap you. They're expecting him to answer it a certain way. That's right. And yeah. we see in the Gospels again and again, Jesus knew they were trying to trap him. We have to think in those terms. We have to think in those terms because um, we've got a lot of very naive people who keep stepping into traps. These are, these are no-win situations. Yeah. In other words, you're not advancing uh, the cause uh, by setting your sort of springing the trap and becoming one more person that they can gleefully uh you know cheer uh about when you're like hanging upside down by your foot <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
you know, and, and they're prodding you with, with sticks and, 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 and then eventually taking you off to burn you. And if we think that's being extreme, that's kind of the language we're starting to hear. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, I, but again, I, I think that what, what, we're, what, we're, what we've entered into is the way things have been largely throughout human history. We are coming out of a fantasy land, or at least a kind of uh, a, a kind of uh, armistice, I, maybe is the way to put it, where we where where everybody agreed to be nice to each other, yeah. even though they didn't agree with each other. But now the stakes are such that people said, "That's it. It's over. The armistice is done. It's all out." win or lose yeah that's yeah the notion of like gentleman gentlemanly warfare it's you know like the old yes right let's line up in straight lines we're bright shoot you and then say sorry (laughs) sorry (laughs) our our friend aaron wren has made fun of that a little bit but anyway um but this whole idea that you know uh we should we should forego exercising discretion and wisdom uh, you know, to serve the cause of Christ is has got to go. Yeah, we need to get we need to get smart. We need to get savvy. We need to get shrewd. We need to learn from our ancestors. We need to learn from Christ. Isn't that interesting? What would Jesus do? Jesus would speak esoterically. <laughs> you, know, you know, we ask that question, what would Jesus do? And, it's, and it seems like it was such an obvious thing. Well, of course we know what Jesus would do. No, we don't know what Jesus would do in certain situations. Yeah. Jesus was a lot more savvy uh, because he knew what was in the heart of man. Yeah. We're told that in different places in the Gospels. So if you know that the person who's approached you is out to get you, what do you do? Do you just sort of say, hey, sure, take me. <laughs> you know, lock me up, drag me away, and beat me. Or do you say, uh, you know what, I need to think a little bit about this. If trying to find a way to... Uh, avoid the trap and maybe reverse the trap spring my own trap and jesus did that repeatedly he set them up we need to learn to set them up so i did this at the university of idaho so some folks out there in pugcast land may have seen my address at the university of idaho (laughs) Uh, the title of the talk was uh, Toxic Matriarchy. <laughs> it was intended to, comp- to, to provoke a response. And there was a huge crowd. There was a police Chris, presence. you tried to provoke a response? <laughs> there was police presence. There was all kinds of stuff. And how I started off the talk was by reading them a children's book. <laughs> and the children's book was Are You My Mother? Now, the book Are You My Mother sets them up in such a way is that, first of all, what was fascinating about this, and Doug, Doug Wilson and I, Doug was actually there that day, and he watched, watched how it all kind of unfolded, and, and he observed that these are people who never had a father read them a children's story. They were wrapped. They were like, wow, he's reading us a children's story. Yeah. They're <laughs> like, go t- on. No, back back to the story, not the lecture. Back to the story. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. They were actually sort of like mouths open, you know, watching me turn the pages, that kind of stuff. I was operating on two levels. Yeah. One of the levels was your children, and you're behaving like it. <clears throat> and then the rest of the evening, they behaved like children, <laughs> like spoiled children yeah. who had never had an authority figure that told them, "No, you can't have that." Yeah. But the other thing I was trying to say was was that 
you know, you really do long for a mother. You long for a home. And the things that you are mocking are the things that you are longing for. Yeah. And it completely blew them away. They didn't know what to do with it. I had set them up. It was an entire, it was an entire setup. Now, at the end of the talk, you know, there, was, there were points where they, came, they all came to the talk with the, you know, the objective of mocking me and sort of disrupting my talk and everything. And I kept preempting them and, and laughing and sort of at the joke and sort of like that. And they didn't really know what to do with that. And at the end of my talk, I had a line of people asking me to, to talk to them. I mean, it was probably 20, 30 people who wanted to talk to me. And every one of them that came up to me, in the, and it was interesting because there were some people there who were from Christ Church in Moscow, and then there were people that, who were there from the LGBT or whatever group that wanted to disrupt the talk. But then there was a third group of genuinely interested non-believers. Hmm. And that, that group was the ones... And the, every time, every one of them that came up to me uh, were from that group. And they all said, don't count me in with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then they wanted to talk to me about the real things I had talked about. Hmm. That's the world that we're in right now. Yeah. We need to be savvy. We need to be smart. We need to set them up. We need to make them look like fools and not look like fools ourselves. And the way that that happens is not by just standing up and saying what's ever on your mind. Yeah. How that happens is by speaking esoterically, by thinking about what you're saying at more than one level. Anyway, I've talked a lot. What do you guys think? <laughs> one of the ways that I, I do this sort of thing is by thinking about um, what somebody described as putting a pebble in their shoe. Mm -hmm. You know, so when I teach, I will drop ideas out there that, you know, I state them in just sort of very matter-of-fact ways, but they are extraordinarily countercultural. You know, so today I was talking about uh, marriage, that the historical purpose of marriage, anthropologically every other way, uh, has to do with children. It's really about the next generation. Because in the Middle Ages, everything was about your family. It was all about lineage and that sort of thing. And if you don't have any children, your lineage dies with you. Right. right. So your entire identity, everything goes out the window. Right. And then I said, you know, this is why, you know, having children became so important during the, the plague because mm. so many were dying. Mm. And, you know, so you get a new valuation of children in that period. Mm -hmm. But along with that, I, I just sort of added that, you know, you know, if you don't have children, your next, the, your society dies in one generation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have them. And this is why marriage is given a privileged position in every society. Right, right. You, know, you just start, you know, this is hard to argue with. I mean, the anthropology, the sociology, everything is absolutely abundantly clear, yet they've never been exposed to it. Yeah, it's Drop crazy. the pebble in their shoe and right. get them to think. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, from a different uh, point, um, one of the things I think that I think is pretty exciting as somebody who does theology studies, especially the early part of the church and the way they use, they use language differently than the way we do, period. Right, right. Um, their world was much more symbolic and, and it, while it referenced the kind of everyday, ordinary things that we talk about, it did such with a richer vocabulary. Right. Um, and there, and one of the things you get is you get insight into way into the way in which you can communicate things um, really 
sometimes in ways that all the attempts we try to do so now completely have missed the right. point, period. Right. Um, I mean, take for example, I'm not saying we need to, well, here's one. The way in which divine naming works in scripture. I mean, divine naming, the naming of God, self-naming, that take, has a whole significance that's completely lost to us. Right, right. So in all of our attempts at the historical, the, the exoteric, the, the straightforward, we're completely missing the rich fabric of communication on many levels that are, is going on in the simple thing of naming, naming a child, yes. naming, um, naming, I mean, the naming, the fact that God names himself right. and names himself in a way that, that allows that name to be carried by a people. And then, then people get to start to associate their own names with the divine. Right. I mean, you're dealing with a level of, of stuff. Even if we just started to pick up that rich way in which language is used um, scripturally, mm -hmm. we're already dealing with a level of esoteric that, that, that I think our, our attempts to read scripture today flatten and miss. Right. And because of that, um, I think that it was, it, was, it was not so hard for St. Paul to use things that, that on the one hand were esoteric and mystical or mysterious on one end. Um, but also communicated to the people that he needed to and also was able to shut the door on those that, right, that right. he didn't need to. Um, well, and, you know, speaking of that, because when, you, when we understand that sometimes you're, you're speaking exoterically and other times you're speaking esoterically and sometimes you're speaking both at once. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think one of the problems that a lot of pastors have in this regard is they've never actually written a story that wasn't just an allegory. When you just write in the way that, uh, you know, generally good writers write, or at least people who are attempting to write good stories write. You don't write allegories, where it's just simple one-on-one -one correspondence, yeah, this yeah. means that. <laughs> You're actually writing at multiple levels. There's a marvelous book that, um, you know, Flannery O'Connor wrote. Uh, well, actually, it was a collection of her essays. Hmm. Uh, it's entitled The Mystery of Manners. And uh, in that book, she talks about this whole matter of how you know, a good Christian writer writes, and, and, and she's talking about writing at multiple levels. And when you're writing at multiple levels, that means interpretation has to be, you know, performed at multiple levels. Hmm. So, like, when we think about Paul, Paul was not a... Uh, uh, he did not uh, adhere to the, uh, the standards of the historical grammatical school of interpretation. Take, you know, Galatians. He uses Hagar. Talks about mountains. To put this in perspective, Paul would have failed his exegesis classes in <laughs> seminary. That's right. That's right. Because uh, the, 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 what I was introduced to in the, with the Historical Grammatical School of Interpretation, which was the school I was, I was <clears throat> baptized into, um, you know, basically uh, the early church and the church fathers would fail, like Paul would fail because they were looking at scripture uh, as something that was richer than people in our day tend to think of it. Now, maybe that's changing, um, but, but, and this is a good segue into talking about uh, sort of ways of thinking and ways of interpreting. So, uh, there are basically, you know, when you talk to most people today, evangelicals, liberals, whatever, they're used to thinking about interpretation in two modes, the modern mode and the postmodern mode. Hmm. 
What they're not prepared to do is think about interpretation in the pre-modern mode because they don't get it. Yeah. They just do not understand how pre-modern interpretation works. So modern interpretation was exoteric. Everything's on the surface, historical, grammatical. And what you have with the, with the modern approach to interpretation is that it's the intention of the author and that alone which determines the meaning of what is said. So you have to understand the historical situation and the context uh, and then sort of the grammatical rules that are being uh, observed as, as he's writing. And if you can understand those things, you can, you can discern what he's saying. And it tends to be the surface level stuff. It, it's, the, it's the surface that you can put together. It's, it's the way language is read off the surface, the most obvious sense. It's the way in which history is understood on the surface in the most obvious sense. Right. Counter this, I'm not, I don't want to jump ahead of what you're saying, but just counter this with the way all the early theologians and scripture itself read, just in terms maybe of, just take the, the, the classic way of re referring to, to first principles. Yep. First principles are what reality is. Yes. The surface isn't. Right. So if you're going to understand the surface, the grammar, the language, the ordinary meaning, and everything else, you don't understand it out of its own self. Right. You have to understand it from the source, from which it is, through it is, and to what it is. Right. And and so, and so the natural. So this is the pre-modern approach. The pre-modern approach. So that's why the the early church found causal language great for communicating it because what what you do, you don't look at the. You don't look at it quantitatively, what I can measure about history from the surface, mm -hmm. but you look at what, what what is the actual ultimate reality that illumines this. Right. And that's well, the way they read history and everything else. Yeah, let's bracket that. I want to yeah. get back to that, but yeah. I want to get to postmodern interpretation yeah. before I do. Yeah. So postmodern interpretation uh, essentially says we cannot know what the intention of the author was. All or, even if you could, it's only one possible meaning. That's it. Do you, do what, you, what matters is what it means for me in my sort of circumstances. And in, in a strange way, what, what postmodernism does is it's re basically someone being honest in relationship to what modernity offers. Because what they're saying basically is when the causal and the, the first principles are ripped from the surface, there isn't one. There isn't anything to attach it from, and therefore it's play. It's it's it, it. Therefore, is something we can do anything we want with. Yeah, it which, which is yeah. why some people call postmodernity hypermodernity. In yeah. other words, it's just taking modernity to the next level. That's right. So, you know, when we when we talk about the modern, you know, someone like say Kant, uh, and the idea that that you know you've got the uh, phenomenological and the numinous, you know, and the idea is that you can know the phenomena, but you don't know the... the sort yeah, of that's, the, where the, sort that's, of the that's where the cutting of right. the, the, the pre-modern is really starting to take its strongest shape. That's it. Yeah. So what happens then is, of course, you're sort of isolated in your own head. Yeah. And the only thing that you can do is sort of promote this idea that some philosophers refer to as intersubjectivity. So you have your subjective world, yeah. I have my subjective world, and isn't it marvelous that they agree? Yeah. So... Uh, but but postmodernists say no no I mean yeah maybe two white guys you know have the same inner life but not not <laughs> somebody who's not a white guy so so that's where we get all of the kind of crazy things that are going on in our world today with postmodernism in other words we have all of these standpoints 
and you brought this up in our last show, Glenn. All yep. the standpoint sort of uh, interpretate and approach, you know, all these standpoints that, that we interpret the world from, but there's nothing that we share in common. Yeah. Now, the pre-modern is very different. The pre-modern doesn't isolate you in your head. Sorry. The pre-modern, uh, what the pre-modern, uh, uh, you know, sort of was uh, rooted in was reality outside your head. And so truth wasn't your truth and my truth. In other words, we weren't trapped in our heads. We weren't sort of subjects and, and that exhausted, you know, what we are. Instead, we were participants, participants in a larger reality that we all share in. Now, you can sort of become isolated in your own head, and that would be a form of insanity. You know, you'd be an idiot. Literally, that's the word, what the word in Greek means. It means be isolated. It means an idiot is a person who's, that's where we get the term idiosyncratic. Yeah, and idios is an individual. Right, right. So, but what you want to be is sort of in touch with what's real outside yourself. You want to be in touch with the truth, with what's good, what's beautiful, or what's, what's right. And, and, and when you're in touch with those things, you're not in touch with reason in a subjective sense. You're in touch with reason in the objective sense. Yeah. Probably the best example of this is uh, transgenderism. Yes. Right. You know, the, historically, the idea was always that you needed to align your thinking with reality. Increasingly, it's if reality doesn't align with your thinking, you've got to change it. Right, right. And everybody has to no, go along with you. Not change reality, not your thinking, that is. That's right. And everybody yeah. has to go along with you, and if they don't, they're, they're performing violence. Right. They're, yeah. 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 They're, they're trying to coerce you into yeah. some kind of... Yeah, you know, power. They're trying to there. force you into reality, right? Into their reality, into their reality. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, because there is no reality. There's no meta narrative, as yeah. they say. So, yeah. So, what we have then is this radically, uh, you know, sort of a modern uh, world that we live in today, and what we advocate is the pre-modern. So we are really, really old dudes. You know, we we're not just physically old; we are old mentally. <laughs> You're definitely old school. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. We're so old school, we think that all the people that taught you, you know, your conservative theology at your XYZ, you know, reform seminary were modernist crazy people. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. There's, you know, one of the things that, excuse me, one of the things that I find really interesting is that in the effort to fight modernity, a lot of groups, like the classic example is the young earth creationist. Right. What they're going to do is they're going to approach the text as postmodern, uh, excuse me, post-enlightenment rationalists. Yes, that's a really fascinating thing. And, yeah, right. and yet they're doing this in an effort to undermine post-enlightenment rationalism, yet they're buying into it's the foundational yeah, yeah. assumptions. Right. Yeah, yeah. What, what they need to do is go a little deeper, come to understand some of the assumptions that they're bringing to the text, mm -hmm. examine those, and one of the best ways to do that is read some really, really old dudes like Irenaeus and Augustine and those guys. Yeah, Augustine's literal interpretation of Genesis is very different than you yeah. Know, the thing that, that than, Augustine was yeah. wrestling with: why doesn't the, why doesn't creation just like instantly appear? Appear. That's right. <laughs> why and did see, it take so long? <laughs> that's right. That's but right. but you know what? In that's the, right. And he meant seven days was yeah, too long. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But what is interesting is the the what's going on in those kind of the, in the in the questions. He's trying to answer. And that's what I think about. Um, you want to gain the wisdom 
and you want to start to break, I, I would say, break the, you know, the Babylonian captivity that modernity and post-modernity has given us to read the text in, in powerfully appropriate ways. What I mean is consistently with the way the church should be reading scripture. We should learn from the wisdom of the questions that the old theologians were asking. And we because, mean old, we mean pre-18th century, pre-17th yeah, even, century. Even in many cases, pre-Reformation right. and, and pre-medieval for a lot of times, just because they're dealing with a world that is similar, strangely, to the one we're entering. Well, you know, that's interesting yeah. because remember yeah. Tom Oden? Yeah, the Drew. You know, yeah, you know, that's right. Yeah. So Tom, you know, was a commie. Yeah. <laughs> so, he, so, he he was what we would, <laughs> from our angle, consider a whack job from from <laughs> at the time. That's right. But I, if I remember correctly, he went to Cuba, and that cured him. So you know, it's it's one thing to romanticize communism; it's another thing to actually see it in action. And he even said, I, I saw him. Uh, once he, he, I think, you know, appropriately embraced confessional orthodox Christianity. He, um, I, he gave a lecture, and one of the things he was saying is, I had been through every theological fad. Yes, right. I remember Every one about of that. them, yeah. yeah. So here's a guy who, you know, then basically rejected everything and became one of the, the editors for the university uh, the classical commentary on scripture. Yeah, remember that? Yeah, and he even wrote a three-volume work that drew off of the wisdom of the whole church right. in a very evangelical presentation of, of theology. But yeah. what happens with these guys is, uh, I, and this is, this is a fascinating thing to kind of think about. In terms of the people that I find the most engaging when it comes to what they have to say, uh, often they're uh, post-communists. In other words, there are people who have actually gone all the way down that, that road, seen where it leads, and, and, and in horror have turned around and come shrieking back. Yeah. And Odin was one of those guys. Another one of those guys uh, for me was Christopher Lash. Yeah. You know, and some of the best guys are the ex-commies because yeah. they are completely... Yeah. Uh, inoculated. Yeah. And and they're looking for the truth. They're looking for, you know, so like, uh, you know, Christopher Lash, he was a red diaper baby. His father was an editor, I think, at the Chicago Tribune. He, w he was a roommate with John Updike at Harvard. Yeah. You know, he was, he was, uh, he had, he had it going. He went to Columbia, got his PhD. You know, he was, he had it out, he had it all. And then he, then he uh, starts criticizing the left. Yeah. So this is the left criticizing the left, and his critique was just brutal. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. it's true and only heaven. You know, culture of narcissism. These great yeah. books. Yeah. Um, the betrayal of uh, the elites and the betrayal of democracy. Yeah. He called it in the mid '90s. Wow. He saw what we just what we're going through right now in yeah. the mid '90s, yeah. and uh, he was just great. But uh, he 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 by by the end of his life, he was reading Jonathan Edwards. Hmm. And uh, he said, uh, you know, he thought that Edwards was the greatest mind that America had ever wow. produced. And yeah, uh, he, uh, he said, you know, this is, you know, we talked about Jansenism last week. And uh, he, he said that he was a Jansenist, huh. but without hope. In other words, yeah, that's, think about that. Think about that. So he, he, he completely embraced the Augustinian sort of framework, but he couldn't bring himself to believe that Christ had risen from the dead. Wow. Uh, 
was the last show. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's a tough place to be. <laughs> it's, it's tough to be Augustinian without the resurrection. <laughs> well, you know, that's it, about it, as bad as it gets. That's right. I, I think it was Gottschalk. One of the medievals was uh, was a hyper Augustinian and was convinced he was among the damned. Uh, wow, wow, that's a tough spot to be in. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you what it's like being damned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to give my first-hand account. And it's, well, it's interesting, even with Odin, is that he, one of the things he was saying um, was, and not, I'm not talking Odin, Sweden, God, the gods, I'm talking Thomas Odin again. I have to qualify. Is, is, is he Scandinavian? He, he might be. He might be. I'd have to look yeah, into that. Yeah, uh, he, yeah, it's, yeah. He, he looked like he could. He, did. He, did, he doesn't have one eye by any chance. Well, does he? Yeah. I don't know, but he. Uh, but he. But one of the things he, I remember him saying is that what I, what he noticed when he was starting to recognize a kind of metanoia change was whenever he was going to do a speaking tour and he had to take books with him. He was all the books that he started leaving everything behind except for the early church fathers. Wow, wow. I mean, wow. think about that, because when we read them, it's hard to get into them. The language right. is a little tough. Uh, right, they're not right. writing the way of our expectations, so it requires a little patience. But here's somebody who is absorbing. What? He was able to capture what's I, going on there. I want to amend something that you said. Mm -hmm. It's not that just that it requires patience. Mm -hmm. It requires humility. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, if, if, when I was in seminary and I was reading the Church Fathers, yeah. I was, in my own mind, in many ways, standing in judgment over them. Were they right or were they wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And to really do this right, you've got to leave that kind of arrogance behind. Yeah, you do. Well, and, and think about the fact that, you know, uh, Unitarians are like the, sort of like the epitome of the modernist way of approaching things. Yeah. Would we have the Trinity if our church fathers thought the way those guys well, thought? Well, see, this, uh, interesting, Lewis Ayers has that famous, uh, something on Nicaea theology, I can't think of the full title now, but his whole argument is this. He said, when you, 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 you don't get to take the church's essential doctrines in their way or articulate without also taking their interpretive right. methods. That's it. Because you, 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 don't, you don't get one without the other. And he thinks, he says what ends up happening with the re-embrace um, of the Trinity in, in modern theology is that what they do is they take a, a caricature of the old Trinity, for example, but they place it into a frame of modernity that mm. distorts it. Yeah. So you get, even with Karl Barth, as much as he did draw off of the tradition, you start to get elements that are going to undermine the classic Christian vision. And so there, this retrieval mode to say, wait a minute, those modes of interpretation that the Spirit endowed the church with to read the text properly, articulate the faith, can't be just jettisoned, even if they don't fit into our modern and theological modern grids. Right, you know, right. A great example of that, the finest book on historical, grammatical interpretation for laymen that I have ever seen is, a, I, and, I, and I, I do recommend it, it's a, it's a wonderful book, uh, it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by, sure. uh, by Fee and Stewart. Yeah. Hmm. Right. And in that, they argue against figurative interpretation explicitly. Yeah. And among other things, they say, just because Paul could do it doesn't mean you can. <laughs> well, that immediately raises the question, right, right, right. Isn't, aren't we supposed to learn how to read the Bible from the way the 
Bible reads That's itself. That's exactly right. the way the early church thought about it. If they saw and they, they, they saw the shadow, you know, shadow in the Old Testament, fulfillment in the New, that became their pattern. That became their pattern of even reading and, other cultures. And if you go to an Orthodox church for, let's say, Easter, oh, what you will find is a truly profound. Thank you. We got you'll, we got new beers arriving. Everybody's <laughs> happy. Yeah, or we will be soon. Um, what, what what you find in the Orthodox liturgy is a level of sensitivity to typology. Yes. yes. All through the Old Testament, right. that just I mean I'm pretty good at this. I've I've done I've done coursework on this, and I'm actually working on a book on it. Um, in, in my copious spare time. Um, but the, the Orthodox world leaves everything I have seen in the Western church in the dust in terms of their sensitivity and awareness of the typology of the Old Testament. Well, I think the thing to keep in mind when we think about typology mm -hmm. and reading uh, esoterically is that, is that the word mystery... Mm -hmm. You know, is something that uh, we don't get today. That's right. Know, when we think of the when we think of a mystery, we think of Sherlock Holmes. We think about some puzzle that can be solved. We think about Columbo or whatever. And uh, then when the puzzle is solved, we say, "Oh, no mystery any longer." Yeah. That's not the way Scripture refers to mystery. That's mystery right. is in Scripture is something inside of something else. Yeah, it's just that simple. Yeah. So when we talk about you know a mystery, we're talking about something that's truly real that has a surface that may belie the truth, that may not help us, we may not see it adequately. When we think about Christ, and we think about you know, his tabernacling in the flesh, there's a sense in which that marvelous imagery in, in John chapter one, in which we have the glory of God irradiating the flesh, and we can see the glory of God in Christ. Well, a lot of people didn't see that glory. That's right. They missed it. And consequently, the, the, the glory was there, but people were, uh, they, 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 they stopped at the surface. They didn't penetrate. Right. They didn't see past well, and, the surface. And that's, that's kind of, I mean, that's a good picture, both on the level of, of we're talking about interpretive realities and, and then the surface. I mean, that I, I've used oftentimes in John's gospel, especially with Jesus is talking about, okay, who, are, who do people say that I am? Thank you. You know, who, who do people say that I am? Right. And so you get a bunch of readings off the surface. That's right, slots of surface reading. And then you even get, okay, let's say we jump above the surface to redemptive history. You get a bunch of surface-level redemptive history folk, you know? Right. <laughs> you right, know, right. Westminster crowd jumps in, you know, at yeah, that right, level. Right, right. But even they, in, according to this text, I'm, I'm not talking about Westminster folks, that was a joke, um, but just the people who just from redemptive history, they weren't getting it right. Well, you, yeah. you may be Elijah or, you, you know, somebody right. you got to be... And then who do you say that I am, Peter? Okay, you're, he, the confession happens. You're the son of the living God. Blessed are you above all others for flesh and blood. The surface didn't reveal to you, but that which is the principal source of all things, right. that interpretation, therefore, becomes right. foundational to, to I will build my church on this kind okay. of confessional. Yeah, now word. think about it like this. Jesus tells the Pharisees and the scribes, you, know, you you read Moses and the prophets mm -hmm. because you think in them you have eternal life, but these are the things that speak about me. Right. Yes. Right. 
And then think about the road to Emmaus where Jesus is telling them, look, it's obvious from the scriptures that the Messiah had to die and rise from the dead on the third day. And it isn't until the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, the Eucharist. Which, by the way, the word sacramentum in Latin is the translation of the Greek mysterion. That's right. So the sacraments are mysteries. That's right. I mean, but, but you know, People, yeah, you know, I've occasionally been asked, you know, if you could, if you could be anywhere, you know, in history, what would you like to? What I would like to have, to have been is fluent in whatever language they were speaking and be there when Jesus was talking to the guys on the road to Emmaus, right. because I want to know how he read the scripture, because it ain't the way I do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he was bringing to the service things that were that were there all along. In other words, he's not reading into scripture. Mm-hmm. He's drawing out of yeah. scripture. It's, it's fascinating. The word educate means to draw out. Right. You know, we, we think that it's to put in. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> An education is, is, a, is a process in which the truth is drawn out, not only of the things that are surrounding us, but even the things that are in ourselves. So a good teacher is drawing things out of the student. And and yeah, it is interesting. He connects that to the, you know, he being the center, the the central hermeneutic, but again, not on the surface of who he is, not, but, but, but in, in, in the fullness of who he is. And then he being, of course, the guide in opening the scriptures up, of course, for us in the spirit. But then the next part is he being accessible and present through the Eucharist. And I, I think those things can't be ripped. Well, and what yeah. this does is it reflects reality. You know, we've yeah. talked about the relationship between ontology or metaphysics and epistemology. And uh, it's, it, these are not sort of completely independent, rea- you know, sort of That's things. Right. These, these things relate to each other because what you are trying to do when you are talking about it, you know, how do we know what's real, is you're trying to understand, you know, uh, reality, you know, the, the being of things, you know, what they really are. So... If reality is multi-layered, in other words, if there, are, if there are several layers to reality, and if reality has got a surface and an inner reality, then necessarily our language to describe reality is going to be multi-layered, right? Yeah. Uh, because it would only be, it could only fully express that reality through being multi-layered. And, you know, again, this gets me back to being a writer. I think that one of the problems with lots of pastors is they just need to write some fiction. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, and I don't mean just like an allegory, because an allegory is a modern way of approaching things. It's a a modern way of trying to be clever with a story. Uh, What you really need to do is try to write a good story. One of the things that has fascinated me about the fascination that people have with C.S. Lewis is this. Um, evangelicals love C.S. Lewis, and then they try to do what he did, and they fail repeatedly again <laughs> and again and again. And because the re- they don't understand what he did. That's exactly yeah. it. He was operating from a from. He called himself a dinosaur. He said he was a pre-modern man. Yeah. He was a man who understood, you know, classical and medieval thought, yeah. and he lived with that thought every day. Yeah. And he was that man. He was. Yeah. He was, you know, a kind of dinosaur. Yeah. You know, and I remember, remember he, 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 in his address, I think it was d- during his lectures related to the, the, to, the, the, to, the, to the essays that are found in um, uh, Discarded Image hmm. when he was at Cambridge. He said, study me. I am a relic. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to understand how people thought in the past, 
thing. But, but most evangelicals, the people who write for Baker or Zondervan or, or Crossway, and who try to do what Lewis did, fail yeah. because they're not pre-modern people. They're modern people. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, think one of the places where I always start when I'm trying to get my students to understand this, the difference, is with what Nancy Piercy and others call the fact-value distinction. Francis Schaeffer called it upper and lower story thinking. The idea that the physical world is the world of fact and everything else is sort of opinion or faith or isn't somehow as real as the physical world of fact around us. Okay, in contrast to that, think about the incarnation. What does the incarnation do? The transcendent God who created all things enters his creation. What does that mean about the creation itself? He becomes human. What does that say about humanity? Think about this. The, the eternal God, the source of everything, acquired something he didn't have before, mm-hmm. which is the human nature. Mm-hmm. And God now, and it has to be worded this way, God now shares something with us mm-hmm. for all eternity that he never had before, which is that human nature. Mm-hmm. This is astonishing. Mm-hmm. And what's more, though, when you go past the human nature, when you go to, to the creation itself, when you think about the sacraments of yes. bread and wine right. in which Jesus describes the bread as his body and the wine as his blood, he's identifying with the physical universe and the physical creation right. in a way that makes the fact-value distinction utterly crumble. Right. And that's probably, I think that in in most people, most moderns and postmoderns' mind is the hardest thing to get past. Yeah, because the way modern people think, and I know Nancy and and she and I have talked about this, is uh, the way modern people think is that the facts are objective and the values are subjective. Right. You know, we bring the values, the facts are just, you know, sort of brute. Yeah. Objects. To quote the great philosopher Peter Shickley, truth is just truth. You can't have opinions about truth. <laughs> That's right. But yeah. that would mean then that values are not really true. Well, and in, in what's going on there is also there's a gap between the two, and that's the problem because what ends up happening, as Schaefer likes to point out, is it becomes flipped. And so fact no longer has any meaning, and so value is That's detached it. from fact altogether, and then it runs loose, so it's, it's irrational and then ungrounded. Right? Well, and then you get postmodernism well, in which the fact-value distinction is turned on its head well, that's that what exactly, is ultimately real is what you think inside I, of I th- you. I think Schaefer was probably prescient in many ways, oh, too. Yeah, po- yeah, he, yeah. he was letting us know that that beast postmodernism is on on its way. He didn't have a term for it yet. Yeah, that's yeah. I think why he's. I think he's still important to read specifically because whatever his faults and in some in, historical interpretation, he gets Aquinas way wrong. I keep telling people that. But other than that, um, some of his capacity to discern what the next flow is when this this, and, this unleashes. And, and, you, and you outlined a very important thing yeah. that our fo- folks need to to appreciate, and that is. When you eat chicken, you throw away the bones. Yeah. You know, just because you read Aquinas doesn't mean you buy into everything in Aquinas. That's said. right. Just because you read Shakespeare And you don't have to dress you... like them, you know. <laughs> and especially, well, th- th- this is a, a funny note. I do have to say this. I, I, I don't know if my friend will be listening. I have a seminary friend, and we were, we were discussing Francis Schaeffer, of all right, things. Right, right. And one of the things he was saying is, oh, he had such 
a profound influence on me. He was telling the whole class when they sure. were telling me. He said, yeah, he shaped my sense of dress and style. For <laughs> <laughs> now, for folks out there who don't know who Francis Schaefer was, go on Google, look him up, and you'll see that he wore knickers. And had a goatee. He had a goatee. He tried to look like a Swede. Or not a Swede, a Swiss. A Swiss, yeah. you know, Swiss, Swiss Switzerland. More, yeah. more Swiss than Carl Barth. <laughs> after, after Schaefer died, there was a joke that was going around that a guy in, in knickers shows up at the pearly gates <laughs> and St. Peter says to him, uh, name? Francis Schaefer. And Peter looks down the list and says, oh, yeah, you're here. Wait, there's a note. And Mr. Thomas Aquinas would like to speak with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's good. Well, we should, we, should, we should bring this into uh, a land. We should land this uh, plane here and, and uh, call it a night. But uh, anyway, uh, any final thoughts you guys want to uh, share with, with folks? I'm going to repeat C.S. Lewis. Okay. Read old books. Yes, yes. And I will add my caveat that I learned from my own mistakes. Read them with humility. Yeah, yeah. right, right. You know, assume that they know more than you. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, even as someone who, who is in the Reformed line of Christianity, I mean, what Calvin and all the early teachers taught us is how to read these people and read them and read them and read them and read them right. well. We right. don't need to read them the same way. We need to read them. Um, and it is important because it will break some of the, um, the bad habits we've inherited. Mm -hmm. um, it'll wean us off of some of our idols, and it'll, it'll cause us to say, wait a minute, there's some wisdom in these writings. Right. right. Um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's what we do with Scripture, but let's look at the way in which the Holy Spirit impacted different Christians across history. We're not the only Christians. Right, right. You know? Yeah, I guess the thing, the way I'd like to wrap this up, uh, uh, I, I introduced the, uh, the two uh, uh, approaches to, to, to uh, teaching, which is esoteric and exoteric. Exoteric, I think, is what most people assume to be the case, and esoteric is, is something that folks are a bit suspicious about. But I think we've demonstrated a couple of things. One is, is that there are good reasons to teach esoterically, and one of those reasons has to do with being in environments in which, uh, you know, the church faces persecution and censorship. And in order to get our message out, we have to uh, speak esoterically so that those who are supposed to know can hear and know. But the other reason to speak esoterically is that sometimes esoteric speech conveys uh, something about conveys something about reality as a whole that's just simply true. And that is, there are more. There's more than one level to to the reality that we live in. There's an outside and an inside as well. And and the only way you can get that across, uh, that that reality across, is to speak at more than one level. To have an outside and an inside when it comes to what you're saying. And that, by its very nature, means that there's an exoteric and an esoteric dimension to some things that we say just, you know, using the Lord. The Lord taught uh, using parables, and then there's, a, there's an exoteric way of understanding the parables, which is the parables make sense. There was once a man who sowed some seed, and then, <laughs> and then there's the esoteric, which is the, what the Lord, you know, 
afterward explains to his disciples when they ask him, what was that all about? What did you mean when you told that parable about the sowing of the seed? And then Jesus explains, this means this, and this meant that, so forth. So there were two levels, even as Jesus told the story. Yeah. There was an exoteric and yeah. an esoteric level Amazing. in the story of yeah. the parable of the sower. And that wasn't the only time that Jesus spoke that way. In fact, his disciples complained. Why can't you speak plainly? <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that explains it's a different time in show, but maybe that explains Kierkegaard's direct and indirect communication. I, well, you, no, that's a good point. I'd that'd love be a neat, yeah. That'd be a neat place yeah, to yeah, visit. Yeah, we need to go back to him. Yeah. I'd love to talk about A and talk about yeah. Yeah, all those guys yeah. and talk about... Climacus and... Yeah, yeah. yeah, the Night of Infinite Resignation yeah. and all that stuff. <laughs> anyway, that's another show. So we planted some seeds in your mind and you're yeah. probably Googling the Night of Infinite Resignation. <laughs> anyway, well, we're going to have dinner now. <laughs> and I hope you have dinner where you are. And uh, I think that's enough because our wives are ready to order a meal. So, bye-bye. Bye, bye. Now. <laughs>